my idea was uh, to do a piece on who was the who was the Scott brother, Ridley or Tony, who had most sold out. And you know, they both both those brothers have a lot of fans. So I wrote this piece, just quite kind of light-hearted, slightly diggy kind of piece about them. And um, then went on holiday and had an email when I came back from my editor saying, um, "Are you okay? D- don't worry about those comments." I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> Apparently, there'd been lots of like insulting comments, you know, um, personal attacks on me and my byline photo <laughs> because. <laughs> because I'd because I'd like well like, directors that <laughs> yeah I mean it all gets very uh, it was very much at the, I don't know how it is now but it's very much at the playground level I guess <laughs> hello and welcome to Freelance Pod my name's Chandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has changed the world of work on each episode I'll speak to a guest about freelancing, side hustles, the gig economy, jobs that weren't possible before the internet, and how moving from an analogue to a digital age has revolutionised the way we work. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow FreelancePod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group, and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. So my guest on the pod this week is Ryan Gilby. Ryan is a freelance film critic and he writes for the New Statesman, The Guardian and a whole host of other places. I first met Ryan 12 years ago when he was my tutor on a film journalism course at the British Film Institute in London. So it's really nice to reunite with him and see what he has to say about being a freelancer in an increasingly digital world. So the title of this episode is Movies are the Memories of Our Lifetime and it's from a longer quote by Martin Scorsese who is mentioned in one of Ryan's anecdotes in this episode. The full quote is really nice. It goes, um, Movies touch our hearts, awaken our vision, and change the way we see things. They take us to other places, they open doors and minds. Movies are memories of our lifetime. We need to keep them alive. And so I thought I would take that sentence and name this episode after it. And we'll really be looking at how journalism has changed, particularly in terms of film and celebrity, but also how the film industry has changed in response to digital. My name is Ryan Gilby. I'm film critic for the New Statesman and um, a freelance journalist at The Guardian and The Sunday Times. And how, how did we meet, my mentor? We met, we met because I was teaching on a, a BFI film journalism course and you were one of the students. Um, I don't do that much teaching, but little bits here and there. Um, and that was, I think, the first time I realised that I had any skills that I could possibly pass on to anyone else. Well, see, this is where our this is where our experiences diverge because I was a, um, really a print creature because I started as a freelancer in 1994, and so you know, even the thought of you inviting me to come on this podcast gives me a slight chill because it feels like being asked to you know come and dance at the teenagers' disco, and it's like, well, my moves are a bit rusty, and I don't think they I don't think they really fit kind of you know your generation. So it's more, it's more, it's more like that. It's more kind of not really understanding things like web traffic and you know. Um, not knowing whether to call them clicks or hits and you know not not knowing how people do podcasts and things like that so so you know I feel like a beginner coming on here whereas I've been a journalist you know for 24 years but this is uh yeah it feels like there's a kind of generational schism with us yeah not really knowing how the land lies really and not knowing yeah how I mean 
just not knowing how digital has changed things really and feeling like I'm kind of observing through a glass really <laughs> but, but yeah you're right there are journalistic you know there are there are kind of perennials there are commonalities um whatever the technology you know when I when I talk to journalism students now um you know some of the advice I give and that I'd give to any freelancer basically to anyone is be good and be dependable <laughs> I mean those things whether you're making a podcast whether you're you know working in digital or print be good and be dependable, otherwise editors won't rehire you. They don't want to deal with a load of trouble or the copy arriving late or anything like that or in a mess and they have to spend loads of time rewriting it. I mean, those things just kind of endure, don't they, those rules? At the end of 1993, I, um, I won a writing competition that was organised by The Independent and Sight and Sound uh, to find the best unpublished film journalist under 25. And then one of the prizes from that was work experience on The Independent. How did you feel when you walked into the Hindi that first? Was it in Canary Wharf? No, it was before that. It was City Road. Um, so, uh, yeah, Old Street. Um, it was completely nerve-wracking. Um, the, the, the paper's critic at the time, Sheila Johnston, took me along some screenings and they got me to write some little kind of odds and ends that I think made it into the paper. Um, and, yeah, it was. And then, like I say, I got, I got a job out of that. Um, and, and then my responsibilities kind of increase. There's a lot to be said for being in the office and being there and being seen. Um, but I mean, it, I guess that is, a, I didn't think about it until you said it, but that is a difference now with digital. If you, everything's so remote, so you're not necessarily in your editor's eye line. But I think the, the same things still apply about being dependable and available. And also if you're, I mean, if you want me to talk about pitching, that kind of thing, it's, it's you know, really, whatever industry you're in, it's about um, knowing who you're pitching to, isn't it? So basically, say, say at The Guardian, the editors there get actually thousands of emails a day pitching ideas. And if the idea you're pitching is, a, you know, their hundredth idea they've read that day about Marvel films or Star Wars, then obviously it's not going to get noticed. But if you study the paper, study what they cover and find any kind of gaps, uh, you know, any area that isn't being catered for, then you're much more likely to stand out. See, when I started out, I thought that this would be the perfect job for me because um, I'm quite shy and just sitting in, the, sitting in a room watching a film and going back home, writing about the film, filing it. You know, I thought that'd be the perfect job for someone who's, who's really shy. And then suddenly, like, editors were spoiling all that by sending me out to interview actors and directors, which is, you know, in retrospect, completely brilliant because it helped me develop those sort of skills. Balance of the two is what has kept me, kept the job fresh for me, that it isn't just uh, responding to the text. It's also kind of interacting with people who, um, you know, in the industry side of things, are, in, are making these films. And, you know, I love, love, love interviewing directors because they have all the angles they've thought everything through and they really want that kind of debate you know like interviewing someone like tarantino who you know is almost overjoyed if you have a problem with his film because he really wants to wrestle about it um whereas actors can be super frustrating because if they have got some magical technique they use they don't want to tell you about it because it's you know giving away their secrets a lot of actors are superstitious if they have any sort of presence in you know, any sort of presence in the public eye, any sort of controversy, they don't, they won't want to talk about that. There's, I find that Indian actors really difficult because they're so guarded. What keeps a job fresh for me is that is that variety. So it's not just so I do like interviews, reviews, think pieces. You know, features that I've sometimes come up with the idea myself. Blogs. Um, something I love doing is obituaries because you know, just really kind of delving into someone's life and all the detail and and having the time to go to 
the BFI library and do lots of research and things like that. Um, what else do I do? Set visits. That can be really, that can be really interesting. Um, bit of teaching. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of variety to it, which I completely didn't foresee when I used to say, I want to be a film critic. I want to be like Barry Norman, which would have been the thing in the 80s. Was that the dream? Yeah, because he was the only, I guess he was the only visible, you know, if you were, as a kid, like not reading newspapers, he was the visible film critic, wasn't he, on TV? I studied um, English and American literature, but I was already writing, like, you know, writing my own film reviews and stuff by then. So, um, but it took me a remarkably long time to put those two things together my main passion film and the only thing i'm good at which is writing so but then when that came together that was yeah it clicked so who do you remember your first interview um yeah i think it was um it was jean reno the french actor terrible french accent there uh, it was for leon if you remember that film yeah, leon yeah. where he played a hitman yeah i just was just sent to interview him by premier magazine and uh was just found in a hotel bar with him for an hour you know an hour now is extravagant i mean you're lucky to get kind of 15 minutes with someone now but um yeah and it was great because i think it was a conversation i wasn't going through it, it wasn't i went in thinking okay this has got to be a conversation i went in with questions obviously written down in my pad but because it was a conversation it took its own course yeah and before I knew it, uh, the questions were kind of irrelevant because we were just talking. And These are the best ones yeah, absolutely. to have with the whole machine. Completely. The whole press junket, hotel, you know, each journalist getting 20 minutes, then getting kind of bust out of the room and the next journalist brought in. Yeah, that, that really kills kind of spontaneity. But unfortunately, it's the way that most interviews are done these days. As a self-confessed creature of print, Ryan has been well-placed to witness how digital has changed film journalism. There's a major difference between filing a story for the paper and filing it for online. On the internet, the conversation might carry on, below the line in the comments and on social media. Here's what Ryan has to say about that. It wasn't much of a wrench to quit Facebook. I realised it was like, it was costing me a lot of brain power. It costs if you're writing for a living. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've only got a finite amount of time in the day when I'm creative. I've got about six hours at the start of the day from like 6 or 7am. And then... As we get into the afternoon, the writing gets worse and worse. So I tend to just, I tend to just stop around one or two o'clock and do, do other things. Um, so yeah, Facebook was just costing me a lot of, uh, thinking time really. And Twitter, I quit about two years ago. It's kind of for the same reason. I was working on quite a big project that I needed to devote time to. And I was finding that I was giving like an hour a day to Twitter, usually Twitter arguments. And it's just like, why am I giving, why am I giving this valuable brain time? to argue with people about, you know, which Gene Hackman performance is the best. It's like, it's just a complete waste of time. Usually you get below the line comments saying, that headline doesn't represent the article. And I just think, I didn't write it. Don't pick on me. Do you respond to comments? No, I try not to go below the line, actually. It's all just a bit murky and horrible there. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, this is another, I guess this is another kind of area where where I betray my origins as a creature of print um, in that once, you know, I work so hard on my pieces and once they're done, that's everything I've got to say in that piece. And it's not really, for me, the, the conversation then is for the readers to take if they want to. Um, I don't really want to wade in and, you know, I've said everything that I wanted to say within the word limit on that subject. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not one for kind of wading in and rebutting like the insults and stuff. <laughs> I remember one time I wrote a, I, I got commissioned uh, by The Guardian to do something on, um, actually, no, I didn't get commissioned. I'm telling a lie now. I'm trying to shirk responsibility here. It was my idea. 
to write a piece on. He was the, he you was pitched it. yeah, I pitched it. It was when it was when they were they had um, like there was lots of blogs and stuff going online. I think I guess two thousand nine. Um, there it was my idea was uh, to do a piece on who was the who was the Scott brother Ridley or Tony who had most sold out. And you know they both both those brothers have a lot of fans. So I wrote this piece, just quite kind of light hearted, slightly diggy kind of piece about them and um, then went on holiday and had an email when i came back from my editor saying um are you okay D- don't worry about those comments i was like what do you mean <laughs> apparently there'd been lots of like insulting comments you know um, personal attacks on me and my byline photo <laughs> because <laughs> because i'd because i'd slagged off like directors that <laughs> yeah um, i mean it all gets very uh it was very much at the, i don't know how it is now but it's very much at the playground level i guess the internet's completely changed film and celebrity journalism. News or a quote, once published, can be copied endlessly by publications around the world, making a throwaway line into hard truth. It will then live on the internet as long as we have Wi-Fi and electricity and search engines to find it. Interviews research a star's old roles and interviews before meeting them and present the interviewee with the things that their younger self said. Does this add up to a coherent picture of a person over time or does it stop a person from growing? I dealt with exactly this issue a few weeks ago when I interviewed actress Natalie Dormer for New Statesman. You might know her from um, TV's Game of Thrones or the Hunger Games films and and many, many other things. So the link to that piece is in this episode's notes. We dealt with the challenges of stardom in internet age. The piece had two effects online after it was published. The news of the end of her long-term relationship was picked up by outlets across the world and uh, the personal life section of her Wikipedia page was rewritten to reflect the fact that she has always felt that she's been represented unfairly in the media and online. The speed at which these changes were made was incredible. This is why we journalists get into the business after all, to change things for the better, right? (laughs) As a creature of print and someone who's interviewed many, many more movie stars than I have, what does Ryan think of all this? I found myself in strange situations sometimes, like trying to convince David Fincher that Panic Room is better than he thinks it is. <laughs> Things like that. What did Which he was, think was wrong with Panic Room? Well, he was actually, he's great because he's a really candid um, interviewee. And um, he was just, it was on the pre- it was actually on the press tour for Panic Room. Usually, usually people will admit to kind of their true feelings kind of years after the fact, you know, like Daniel Craig years later then saying, oh yeah, Quantum Solace wasn't really you know, wasn't really complete. The script wasn't really finished. It's like, we'll say that at the time. What about all those journalists that you were saying, this is, I'm really proud of this piece of work. Anyway, Fincher was um, on the press tour for Panic Room. He was saying, um, yeah, it's just a bit of entertainment. I was like, no, it's more than, (laughs) and laying out all my evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are some of your best interviews that you did? Almost Mm. memorable for other ones. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. We were talking about before about how um, the whole press junket thing has changed and, you know, you get less time with people. Uh, you often get the PRs sitting in the room, which, uh, which I hate. I mean, that's another thing that really kills, uh, kills any sort of freshness. Um, but that, but it can be revealing in its own way. Like one of my favorite things that I've, that one of my favorite interviews that I've done in recent years was also one of the most awkward, which was a, um, I was flown out to Venice to interview Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt because they just made Magnificent Seven remake. Um, and, um, you know, it's the end of the press tour. I think I was probably the last journalist there. I had half an hour in a room with them and I, you know, got all my questions. Um, but they just didn't, 
they didn't want to give a fixed answer to anything. So when I was asking things about, you know, do you see this as a diversity Western or, you know, ask about parallels between the villain in the film and Donald Trump, um, all things that the director had had confirmed he was definitely thinking of when he made the film. So, you know, it wasn't a curveball or anything. And they just didn't want to fix anything. You know, they would say, well, you might see it like that but the audience might not. There was nothing that they would actually give an opinion on. So we got into the, the subject of why they wouldn't give an opinion on anything. And Chris Pratt admitted that it was because anything he says is going to be around the world, you know, within an hour of the piece coming out and will, could be misrepresented. And so the piece became actually about this kind of paralysis in the celebrity interview where no one wants to say anything. So I'm going to read back that interview now. It is almost like a kind of X-ray of the typical celebrity interview, you know? And like I said, I'd interview the director as well, and he was completely straightforward about all these things. Yep, I was thinking of Donald Trump. Yep, it's a diversity Western. Things go wrong, and you find that sometimes you get a better piece yeah. that way. Like the, I was sent to the set of Personal Shopper to interview Kristen Stewart, and when I got there, her publicist said, Kristen's very tired. Um, she's not in the mood to do any interviews. <laughs> well, she looks pretty sprightly to me, but she didn't want to talk to a journalist. And so, the, again, the piece became about trying to get like five minutes with her, <laughs> which, well, I'd, I'd have to leave it to the reader to decide. But from my point of view, it actually became a more interesting piece, I think, than if I had managed to get hold of her. I mean, you can't go on writing those pieces forever. Sooner or later, people will think, why is this guy getting such short shrift? If you're pitching ideas look for the areas that aren't, aren't being catered for. So I think it's in 2000, like one example would be in 2011, I realised that even though Bollywood films were always in the top 10, they weren't being reviewed. And there's a practical reason for that. They're not shown, the distributor doesn't show them because there's a, such a big guaranteed audience. They don't need the help of critics. But I, I thought it would be fun to do a kind of layman's column on Bollywood, like every couple of weeks, like, Go to the, where was my local? It was the Ilford Cine World. So go to the Ilford Cine World, see a couple of Bollywood films a fortnight and then file a column. And, and the Guardian were really, um, they were really up for that because they didn't have anyone covering Bollywood. So, so it's like spotting that gap. Unfortunately, I then, after my first column, I then had a, an eye injury and I couldn't go to the cinema for three months. And then by the time I came back, they didn't have the budget anymore for the column. So the lesson there is be very careful uh, around your eyes. <laughs> you need your eyes basically yeah <laughs> i'm healed <laughs> om, om shanti om was the one for me which i think was 2007 or something like that and then that sort of kind of piqued my interest like this is really good stuff this is quality um so i didn't want to write it from the point of view of it being oh look at these funny bollywood films how kitsch and everything there's lots of um i did see the yeah i did have to review the bollywood remake of speed did you know there was a bollywood remake of speed what's that like it's called tez and it's set on a it's set on the uh, london to glasgow virgin express (laughs) and there's a bomb on the train for me, I mean, Father Ted version's the only remake. But I love that. When it's on a train. <laughs> yeah. And because obviously Virgin have allowed their train to be used, they can't have it, they can't have it shown being, you know, blown up. So I think... So in, yeah, I think the bomb gets diffused at the end. They actually got a discount on their tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Free Kit Kat from the buffet car. I genuinely wouldn't want any other job. I, I feel as lucky, like, now as I did when I started, like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this stuff, to write about something. But I think that something we should probably talk about as we're talking about freelancing is the downside, which is that um, because you don't have office hours, um, and especially if what you're writing about is something that's uh, kind of an extracurricular passion for you anyway, it's really easy for work 
to bleed into the rest of your life. And, you know, there've definitely been lots of times kind of early on in my career when I didn't kind of make that divide between work and the rest of my life. So you start thinking like, oh yeah, I can't go on a holiday around this time because they've got the press junket for this and I might get an interview. And, you know, it can easily like kind of your, the rest of your life can kind of go down that sort of work tube. Yeah, there are definitely those days when you feel really isolated. Yeah. as a freelancer but yeah another thing i always tell uh, journalism students is just about um knowing when and where you work best yeah. so if you like i said earlier about i can't after 1 p.m my writing goes way downhill really steeply How so can you tell? What are the signs? well just i just like you just it just gets really listless and if i compared a paragraph that i wrote at seven in the morning with one i wrote at one in the afternoon you'd honestly you'd be able to see you'd be, you'd be shocked um but yeah so so like kind of build your freelance life around those things. So I try and do like stuff that's away from my desk in the afternoon. Here, Ryan dispels a few myths about the more glamorous side of filmmaking and film reviewing, going to film festivals and interviewing stars. Sometimes I go to the Berlin Film Festival because it's quite sedate and it's not the mad kind of bun fight of Venice or Cannes. Um, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really good at kind of scrabbling physically for work in that sense kind of running all over town chasing celebrities as an interview you have to uh consider what it's like for the interviewee to be sitting in that hotel room for like yes. two two whole days and journalists coming one after the other asking what first interested you in this script so yeah. i think it's your duty as an interviewer to bear that in mind and to not ask what first interested you in this script yeah. like think of some subjects in their career they haven't explored or they haven't been asked about recently that kind of thing and just know their know their work as well as you can like if you're interviewing an actor say like watch as much of their stuff as you possibly can before going in then you've got more tools in your van to use a kind of plumbing analogy haven't you it's like you don't want to be the plumber turning up and you haven't got the right wrench you can tell i don't know very much about plumbing <laughs> do plumbers use i'm presuming they use wrenches well, I've had from, people I've interviewed from plumbers from plumbers <laughs> saying that your work is great <laughs> you can kind of see from their face that they, they hear the same questions yeah. and you can see when you've woken them up a bit yeah because they're like oh they're a bit different and that's what you try and aim for just yeah I remember waiting outside, um, waiting outside the hotel room to interview Martin Scorsese when he was um, in doing the, the kind of press tour for Gangs of New York, and I could hear him telling his, um, I could hear him telling his publicist, "I can't do any more interviews. I can't do it. I'm exhausted. I don't know how I'm going to do Germany." I was sitting outside waiting to interview this hero of mine, thinking, "Oh, great! What are we going to do?" So after the initial kind of five or ten minutes that we had to talk about Gangs of New York, I just steered it onto. This other film of his that I love, um, this documentary called Italian American, which he made about his parents in the 70s. Because um, I'm from an Italian family as well. So I thought, okay, we can get some common ground here, maybe talk about that. And um, and he did seem like visibly kind of oxygenated. Exactly. He started talking about like, you know, the importance of mealtimes in Italian family life and things like that. But that was really like a kind of survival tactic for me. It was like, how the hell am I going to get through like this half hour, 40 minute, whatever it was, interview with Scorsese when... Just heard him saying he doesn't want to do more interviews. Something else I wanted to mention was, as a freelancer, you're often putting lots of time into things that don't pan out. Um, but I think one lesson there is a little bit like you said about the person who um, you'd met years back and then they called on you to do the Black yeah. Mirror stuff. Like you never know what's going to become useful. So over the last kind of 18 months, I had two abortive interviews with Michael Caine, one where I was supposed to go on set for king of thieves and then it turned out he wasn't going to be there that day so the paper didn't end up sending me and the next thing was like a phoner for some straight to dvd film that he was doing and you know i'd put in a lot of uh 
work, doing research, obviously reading lots of old interviews with him, getting my questions ready. Doing his accent. Doing, <laughs> obviously doing the accent. Um, and, and that didn't pan out. Then, like, a few months ago, I did. I got to interview him in person, yeah. 45 minutes, when King Fees came out. So suddenly, that work all became worthwhile, and it was all kind of baked in. So basically, as a freelancer, there's often, you don't know what's going to come in handy. So you'll do work that you might not think is leading to anything, and then it will kind of pay off. It's sort of the long game, really. Um, and sometimes it doesn't pay off. I mean, that's an important thing, Um to remember as a freelancer you know there, there was one time in 2003 where i had so little work as a freelancer i had to take some work that was nothing to do with journalism like i was um i worked did a bit of work for a mental health charity for a few months just because i was still doing like the odd review and stuff but i just wasn't bringing enough money and that's quite a bitter pill to swallow really to realize oh but i thought i was a journalist and then not so much lately but I, I used to fall into this pattern of doing two weeks of of just absolute manic work and then two weeks of not really taking on too much so I needed to recover from my manic two weeks and then suddenly realising I wouldn't have any money the next month so then have another manic two weeks and kind of falling I mean I think it's evened out a bit now but I think that's an easy trap to fall into working too much then working too little um, but I guess everyone finds their own rhythm How long would you say it took you to find, to find that kind of balance? Uh, <laughs> a depressingly long time I think. <laughs> Yeah exactly In fact I've just made it up I haven't found the balance at all um, Yeah it comes and goes I mean um, I think it also ties in with that thing I was saying about not letting work completely bleed into your life and you know if you've if you've booked to go on you know go out with friends or something then it isn't good if just because a piece of work come up you you drop out I mean you're, you've then that's the losses to your social life and the losses to your kind of relaxation time and things like that, all the stuff that's just as vital as working. Um, so, yeah, sometimes a, a job comes up that you can't say no to. But I think, yeah, I think I've learned to to separate that a bit a bit better. And if I've got, if I've already made plans, say, you know, I've got tickets for theatre or tickets to do something, then, yeah, just because someone's asking me to do a feature, I, I have to, like, draw the line sometimes between work and the rest of my life. But it's hard because, like, films... Films is what I think about all the time anyway, so it doesn't feel like work. Okay, so I guess my top freelancing tips would be, um, well, it's, it's a basic kind of journalistic thing. Be good and be reliable, because if you file late and the copy needs a lot of work, you're not going to be top of that editor's list next time they're commissioning something. So that would be one one thing. Be good and be reliable. Um, and another thing would be um, just for your like personal welfare, um, Make sure you take time off. Make sure that you take holidays. Um, I think there was a whole like 18-month period when I realised I hadn't been on holiday at all. And I thought I had, but I'd just been on work trips. So you think that you're relaxing, but you're not. Um, and the interviewing tip I would give is um, that there's, there's no such thing as too much research. Um, know everything that you can possibly find out about your subject before you go in. You may only have like two days notice for the interview, but you can stream everything now. You've got no excuse for not seeing their 1965 debut where they played like a butcher or something and had one line. What about a plumber? No? A plumber. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just have every bit of evidence at your disposal to do a really, really thorough interview and know that thing and ask that thing that other people won't be asking. So thanks to Ryan Gilby for guesting on Freelance Pod. It was great to hear what he's learnt from freelancing across print and digital over the last 24 years. Also, who doesn't love a story from the film world? They're always good. 
you'd like to get involved in the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. So please do follow Freelance Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook group and you don't have to be a freelancer to get involved. If you enjoyed this episode of Freelance Pod, please do rate and review us. This helps other listeners find the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification every time there's a new episode of Freelance Pod. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.